You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hey, Max. Uh, who do you have for the show this week? This week, I have... Uh, do you guys have people in your life that you like email with all the time, but you've never uh, met them in person? That was me and Evan for a long time. No. <laughs> actually... It's still that way. No, We're actually doing this remotely me, me right and, now. Me and, me and Evan um, only appeared on panels with each other and never <laughs> seen each other in, outside of a panel environment for several years. I took someone off my... Uh, email list uh, with this week's show. I had Rafe Bartholomew on. Uh, Rafe, you might know him from uh, his book, Pacific Rims. He went to the Philippines and- The world's foremost expert on Filipino basketball. There definitely is no one above Rafe in the (laughs) Filipino basketball knowledge rankings. Uh, He wrote this great book, Pacific Rims, and then he was uh, an editor at Grantland. He was there like on day three, and he was the features editor for almost the entire run of Grantland. He is is the person who's responsible for like most of the kind of like weird off features that Grantland did. A lot of the stuff that ended up on long form uh, was Rafe's. And he talked a lot about the beginning and also the end of Grantland, uh, which I appreciated. He was pretty candid about the end. Um, And now he has a new book out. It's called Two and Two, and it's about uh, his dad, who is a career bartender at McSorley's in the East Village. I want to jump in here for uh, for our non-New York listeners. If you live in New York and you've been to McSorley's, you need uh, no more information to enjoy this uh, episode. Uh, McSorley's is probably the most notable bar in New York City history. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, or, or it's up there. It's also a place that is um, simultaneously like being uh, patronized by tourists every day, and still remains a unique, very strange place uh, that you can uh, feel the history of as soon as you walk in. Uh, Joseph Mitchell wrote about it, and uh, uh, I think it's in up in the old hotel mm-hmm. in the New Yorker. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. Uh, I highly recommend a visit to anyone who's listening, and uh, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, it's a special place, and and Rafe's dad literally was bartending there his entire life. Like Rafe, when he was five, on Saturday mornings would like wake up and go open McSorley's with his dad. Hey Max, what do you do on Saturday mornings when you wake up? You know what I do, Aaron? I um, let's see. For the last seven years, every Saturday morning, I've woken up and done an email newsletter. Oh, who do you? Um, how do you send that? I use this service called Mailchimp. Wow. It's quite a coincidence. They're our sponsor. This and every week. Thank you, MailChimp. 
You own Max's Saturday morning. If your Saturday morning needs a reliable and easy to use email infusion, check out MailChimp. And now here's Max with Rafe Bartholomew. Hey, Rafe. Max, what's up? How are you, man? Good. I'm uh, very happy to be meeting you in person. It's a good week to be doing it, man. You just came out with your book. Yeah. I mean, it's been a crazy week. Uh, uh, the book, you know, is about the bar- McSorley's, the bar where I grew up, where my dad's a, a career bartender. And we had a, a reading there uh, Tuesday night when it came out. What was it like? It was overwhelming. Like, I've done readings and, you know, done some public stuff. I've done some other podcasting and been on TV in the Philippines. So so I usually am not that scared of this kind of stuff, but I walked into that room, which is, you know, a room that I literally grew up in, where my father started taking me when I was five, six, seven years old. And all of a sudden I see people I have known for my entire life, you know, it's pretty much, you know, from elementary school, high school, college, the Philippines, um, Grantland, you know, Harper's, and McSorley's, you know, I had my aunt there asking me to sign books for my grandmother who couldn't make it down. And it was, I had to gather myself. It, was like, it felt was, like a wedding? Yeah. A we- I, I don't think that many people are going to come out to my wedding, you know, <laughs> um, only because weddings are so expensive. Um, but yeah, it felt something like that. And so it was overwhelming, but it was, it was great. I mean, and, and I was actually really happy because my father's there with me. He actually read some of his poems as well. And to see how happy he was and how sort of the everyone there was rallying around him, that part was really cool. I can imagine that. that. I mean, that was one of the things that struck me reading your book was just I wondered the whole time what he might think of it and what the guys at the bar might think of it. Like, it felt almost like a book that would be written after an era, but all these people are around, like your dad's still bartending my dad still, I mean, so he's officially retired, but they'll still call him in once in a while to fill in and, and he'll get in there and, and he still has it. I mean, I remember he had to fill in, you know, a few months ago and told me that they did something like 12 or 14 kegs, which they hadn't done in a while at McSorley's. And that's a heavy lift to, in seven hours to pour 14 kegs yeah, of ale. That's a long day. Um, that's a couple tons of alcohol <laughs> passing through your arms out into mugs and into people's mouths. So, I mean, he still got it back there. Was it daunting to write about your dad and about this place while everyone's still around? Yeah, it's daunting in, in, a, in a lot of different ways. It's daunting because, you know, the, the least daunting thing is probably, right, even though it's some of the most personal is writing about my father. Although there's a lot, you know, there are details about really difficult times in his life. You know, he's a recovered alcoholic. I write about, you know, he had a, his, his father was a lifelong alcoholic who was abusive to him and the rest of his family. And that stuff is really personal and was hard to write, kind of hard to read. But we've been close kind of my whole life. Like because of his schedule at the bar, he could pick me up from school and take me to, you know, play ball at, at the Carmine Rec Center when I was a kid. And he was always around and, and sort of when he would go off to work at the bar, that's when my mom would get back from her job. So we were always sort of close in that way. And because he was taking me to the bar, it sort of exposed me to the informal side of him, the dirt, you know, like dirty jokes and just, you know, kind of acting a fool in, in the way that people do inside bars. Um, I mean, I do feel like you had like some sort of like fantasy childhood. At least in like I, my dad was a college professor. Right. Like I, I was not hearing dick jokes when I was six at my dad's work. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> at the time, yeah, you are, I mean, you're amazed by the place, and I would, going to the bar was my favorite you know, moment of the week. It's like, please take me this week, dad, please. Like, I want to go, you know, let me clean the tables. Let me do whatever you want. Let me feed the cats. I, I, I just want to be there and listen to y'all. Man, one time they loved it. I, uh, usually before the bar opens, they'll put the bolt lock on the front door to keep people from walking in, but not the chain. Uh, and I didn't know that at the time. I was probably only six years old. So I threw the chain as well. And so the cook at the time was this sort of big, rotund Irish guy, old Irish guy who cursed all the time named Henry. And he's sort of running out in a huff to go because the, the guy from the night before didn't bring onions up to set up. And so he has to go downstairs to get some, some onions from the cellar. And out of force of habit, he just opens the bolt and tries to run through the door and like smashes his face in. And everyone there we just starts laughing their <laughs> ass off at him. They, they, who did that? It was you, Rafe. And then everyone's like, oh, where to go, lad? You really got him good there. You know, so I felt pretty proud of, of having uh, damaged uh, Henry's head that morning. So when you're there, like when you're when you're doing this reading on Tuesday night and all the people you've been writing about are there and you're in the bar, you're in the place you've been writing about, like, did you feel like you got it right? I feel like I got a part of it right. I wanted to write it more about everyone. You know, the the book ended up being very personal about um, my father's career, my experience growing up around the bar, then working there, our relationship, and and that that really is the core of everything. While there are cameos from from the people I worked with and grew up around over the years, I know because I grew up around them that their characters are worthy of books themselves, and I had hoped that it would be more of a, you know, this will capture everything within the bar and, and even a lot of the history, you know, which there is history, but you can't, it's, the place is too big, there's too many people, there's, there's too much history yeah. to do all of that well, or at least for me to do it. My, my brain and talent is not big enough to capture all that, and I, I came up with something more contained, but I think what, what I did get um, was close to right, I, I hope. What your dad think of it? I think he likes it. He was my only editor before my real editor. Really? Um, yeah. Um, I sent him chapter by chapter everything. <laughs> no shit. Uh, and, you know, the, a lot of it was based on interviews I did. You know, I did, we actually did some formal interviews. I don't know if they're actually formal, but yeah. they I made him sit down at the kitchen table with me and, and talk to me, you know, for uh, we had a, lo- a lot of hours there, you know, I, to get details that hadn't come about over the years or whatever and i sent him chapter by chapter for feedback and he gave it to me um man mm, that sounds like such an intense thing to do with your with your father like i I, we are abnormally close yeah my mother died of cancer in 2006 and so you know going through my mother's death with my father made us even closer kind of as adults we have a a more of a friendship relationship uh, that and then when you filter that through sort of McSorley's a friendship relationship that involves us being like you know almost never addressing each other respectfully um <laughs> people come to you know the first time people have seen us interact they're like first of all we can't even understand you all you do is call it like say things like hey Jimbo fuck you bunghead you know i mean um and and second of all yeah the, the, you have you you know, you always call each other by weird kind of dirty pet names um it, we you know we've lived together for a long time what were those conversations like when you'd sit at the at the kitchen table um they were they, they those did get a little intense because i had to ask him about his childhood uh which was you know rough his father was a very abusive alcoholic and my father was a middle child of three who 
kind of got the brunt of his dad's, uh, you know, abuse. And, you know, I, I sort of had to push him on details of the times when uh, there was, you know, uh, over a Thanksgiving holiday when uh, his father took him hunting, got drunk and mistakenly uh, started shooting at him when he thought that uh, my dad, who he had sent to scare some some geese and duck out of a thing, some stuff, a tall patch of grass. He saw the grass moving and just started shooting at it. And my father, you know, thought that he wasn't trying to shoot geese. He was just trying to shoot him. Um, and, and I had to, you know, really, really push him for Jesus. When, when was it? Where was the park really, you know, had you talked to him about that stuff before? You know, he, this is going to sound crazy, but he would, when I was young, he would tell me stories about his father, Frank, he the old man, um, who died before I was born. So I never met him. Um, he would tell me stories when I was pretty young and somehow managed to make them sound, I mean, this is me being naive and his storytelling ability, he would make them sound funny. Um, there was a story about his dad would stash bottles of wine and, and brandy all over whatever apartment they happened to be living in at any given time. Uh, he grew up in Ohio in a suburb of Cleveland. And, you know, his dad threw a, a, a bunch of wine bottles down a laundry chute that got that jammed up the chute. They got lodged in there diagonally. Then his dad, you know, fell asleep. Laundry wouldn't go down the chute. My grandmother asked my father to go down to the, the basement and start like hitting the bottom with a with a broom to knock it loose. And when it all came crashing down, you know, there's a giant pile of glass and laundry and broken, you know, and and, and, and liquor all over the place. And somehow my dad made this story like, and then my dad came down and he was so mad. Um, and he didn't really hide the, the sort of the, the dark endings to those stories. But I guess by nature of him still being there, having survived it, it, it didn't feel as grave back then. But then sitting down and, and interviewing about it, I really pushed him to talk about the the dark side of that and how it felt and how, you know, how that affected him, you know, for years to come after he moved to New York and started working at the bar and, you know, sort of became a heavy drinker himself. He blamed it. He didn't, I don't know if he blamed it, but he just considered it his fate, his inheritance that he was going to drink himself to death like, like he figured his dad would. And he didn't really care. And it took a long time and, and a near suicide attempt to sort of break him out of that. Uh, so... It's so clear in the book, Rafe, how close you guys are. I mean, like, I I just finished it right before you got here, and like, if I'd had enough time, would have like called my dad and told him I loved him. You know, <laughs> like it 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 got me, but it made me wonder whether you'd like gotten to know him better doing the book. Yeah, um, he had kept a journal since he was uh, a senior in college through maybe the mid 80s a few years after i was born and i read you know i ended up reading all of his journals and there was sort of when he first came to new york sort of my father in his 20s was a much much bigger romantic than than i the guy i ever met like he half of the entries were about dates he had been on and oh i met her and we laid together in the heat because there's no air conditioning and you know we lit and it was you know we walked on 13th Street and Avenue B and saw this stuff and it, it feels so good to be next to a woman with a real human heart. I swear he would describe every woman he dated as having a real human heart. <laughs> um, and he was really, really looking hard for love back then. And I guess yeah, obviously he had found it by the time he married my mother and I was born. And this was, you know, more than a decade after a lot of those entries. But that was a side of my dad I had never seen before. Um, and um, 
when he wanted to be a writer, he did write. You know, his, his, he had a routine of he'd finish his, his shift at, the, at McSorley's, go up, he lived above the bar at the time, go upstairs. And this, this sounded disgusting. He would all night, you know, he'd get, a, he'd get up there at two in the morning and just drink tab and brandy and smoke <laughs> cigarettes while working on his typewriter. Uh, until about six in the morning when he would pass out or whatever, and I was like, "Tab and brandy, yeah. man, that is rough." I guess, and you, I mean, I think this predates Diet Coke, which is not. I mean, I wish I could drink less Diet Coke to be honest with you, but um, that just sounds awful. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's grim. Um, that's definitely grim. But he, you know, he finished three manuscripts of books that uh, of novels that were sort of insanely in- ambitious, but. You know, wasn't able to sell them. Um, you know, he thinks, and I, it's, this makes sense. You know, he because he was drinking so heavily at the time, he never really went through the the process of revising them, actually getting them into a publishable condition. He'd sort of rip off uh, eight hundred pages on a father son epic based around the Argonautica myth, with like a, a spy thriller angle in there, and then send it out to people and then when he didn't sell it he was just like well they don't they don't like me because i work at a bar and i'm from ohio blah 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 and so um it just never that that part never came together but you know you can make a career as a bartender at some places in new york and mcsorley's is one of them what were his notes like when you would send him these chapters um he was very open he did not the stuff that might look bad didn't really bother him I, I guess because he you know it was real and and I guess he thought that I was doing a, a strong enough job of telling it that it didn't make him feel bad and to me I never saw it as although yes it is very personal I never saw it as something negative because he comes out to me at the end extremely heroic by the time you know he has me in 82 by the time I'm born he's becomes to me, this dad who I idolized as a bartender, as a guy who would hang out with me and make me laugh and, you know, who I just adored uh, almost every step of the way. I mean, fought, you know, of course, everybody, you know, sure. gets into some fights like that. But uh, to me, it, it was always so obvious that he had overcome the problem in his childhood. He'd overcome his own drinking problem. He'd sort of done all those things. He'd even, you know, and even by the time I was older and in high school he even found a way to to get back into writing and and self-publish a couple books of poems about the bar that i think are very good and that he's managed to sell a lot of from behind the bar so he sort of managed to tick off all those goals just maybe not on the same schedule maybe not in the most normal way i mean i'll tell you the things that he didn't love me writing were some of the sillier sides of him you know because i think one thing that that comes from being from working in service, working as a career bartender or waiter, or is that he encountered over the course of his professional life uh, people who would sort of talk down to him, or if they weren't talking down to him, sort of patronize him and be like treat him like an exhibit, like wow, you are a real New York bartender. Right. That's cool. You you're you know you work with your hands. Wow, tell me what that's like, man. And so when I would reveal, sort of like there's one chapter w- where I talk about a time that. I'm kind of telling a story about when he was uh, he worked through having like severe appendicitis and and needed an appendectomy later that night, and the whole day he was making these terrible like diarrhea jokes about it. You know, he thought he was constipated, um, and he's like, "Do we have to put all this scatological humor in there? I mean, <laughs> people are gonna think I'm just like some kind of caveman." I'm like, "No, I mean, but we were but we were laughing at it all day, and then we had to take you to the hospital." Um, <laughs> You know, so it was actually, I think he's a little more sensitive to stuff like that where he's afraid people will misinterpret uh, or or not 
or or maybe see that side of him and not take him seriously for all of the heroic stuff about him. Hey, I'm going to take a quick break tell you about the uh, people making today's show possible. Our sponsors this week are two podcasts, and I really like it when podcasts sponsor the show. I feel like it just, like, makes sense somehow. Uh, the first one I want to tell you about, it's called Fan Club, and it's a brand new show. It's just six episodes, so it's not a huge commitment, and it's all about uh, why we love what we love. It's about fandom. It's hosted by a guy named Ross Martin, who's thought about fandom maybe more than anyone else on Earth. He's dedicated his whole career to marketing and innovation and entertainment. He's uh, one of Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business. He's a three-time Emmy winner, and he's been working on sort of fandom through his work at Viacom, which is the home of Comedy Central, MTV, Nickelodeon, BET, all kinds of great places. And here's what happens on Fan Club. Uh, Every week, he is talking to these fascinating people about how they connect with their audiences uh, all across the cultural landscape. Musicians, artists, fashion designers, chefs. He's got Tom Colicchio on the show, Charlemagne the God, Shepard Ferry, all kinds of brilliant, smart people talking about how they connect with their fans. The show is going to change the way you think about the things you love. Subscribe now at vbyviacom.com slash fan club or wherever you are listening to this show. Another podcast you could check out wherever it is you are listening to this podcast is called The Front Row. It's a new show. It's brought to you by 2U and it's all about what it's going to take to solve the problems of the future. Each episode features people who are making the future happen across a range of fields like healthcare, data science, manufacturing and cybersecurity. These professionals are at the forefront of their fields and they can give you a front row seat to what the future is going to look like and what kind of skills it will demand. 2U is an ed tech company. They partner with all these great colleges and universities to build digital education programs like MBA at UNC, design at USC, and communications at Syracuse. 2U's platform provides a comprehensive fusion of technology, services, and data architecture to transform high-quality and rigorous campus-based universities into the best digital versions of themselves. Go check it out. Subscribe at 2U.com slash longform. That's the number two, the letter U.com slash longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show, and let's get back to Rafe. You have about as close a relationship to a place as any writer I know. I feel like you are sort of synonymous with the Philippines almost. Like you got a Fulbright and and went there and uh, ended up staying for three years, right? Yeah. And wrote a book called Pacific Rim. It's about basketball in the Philippines. And it's funny, man. Like, again, like I've just been following you and reading your stuff for so long and it's like you just know if there's something about basketball in the Philippines that that Rafe wrote it, you know. Like if you just see anything about that, you know that it was you, and and that feels unique to me. And, and so I, I guess I, I'm interested in what it is about that place. Part of it, I think, is the time that I I went there. You know, I went I, I was on a Fulbright, pretty fresh out of uh, undergrad, and um, you know, I was in my early 20s, and it was an intense time of my life. And one of the sort of things I always carried with me. Uh, since I was a kid, you know, it's sort of, it's like McSorley's or basketball. I mean, like I, I played basketball, followed it, read about it. The first books that I loved were books like The Last Shot and, and, uh, <laughs> Sweet Pea, a book about Lloyd Daniels, um, you know, sort of New York basketball books. Those are like the first grown up books I could sit down and read. So I, you know, so, and, and in the Philippines, I found this basketball culture that was so, uh, 
felt so pure and amazing to me and something and also surprising because if you're not Filipino American, if you're not don't have some connection growing up in the, in the United States to the Philippines, then it's unlikely that you will learn a whole lot about the country. I mean, even, you know, when you're college educated, you take some history classes, you know, read a couple pages about American colonialism there, the Philippine-American War. You'll learn about Imelda Marcos and her shoes. That's about it. Unless you seek it out, you won't find it. Um, and that's sort of how I arrived at the idea that, that basketball was this prime mover in Philippine culture, that it was something that, you know, people will say you can, you can go to any town and there's a basketball court, a market and a church there. Like it's on that level and it, and it is on that level. And so as someone who loved the sport and at times felt, at times I felt like I was a little overboard. Like, I guess I went to school at Northwestern and I felt like the outlaw New Yorker there or something for a couple of years it was probably just stupid. But, um, when I didn't feel like I was fitting in, I just played basketball all the time. I played basketball. I counted for like 94 straight days once uh, at, at, at Northwestern. Um, so then arriving in the Philippines, being like, oh, everyone here is just insane about this sport. Like I am. <laughs> um, and learning about the, the they have this. Uh, what's interesting there is, you know, because of the colonial experience, which is not like something America should be proud of, but that put basketball on the center stage in the Philippines before it became a big sport here even. I mean, basketball has been the the sort of main spectator and team sport there since the 1930s. So there's this homegrown style and legends and the game was imported there, but then it was left alone to grow. Whereas, you, you know, the, 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 the story of basketball spreading across the globe to most of Europe and, and China and other, most other countries in the world is more, is, you know, occurs in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and it's really about NBA basketball, you know, be exporting itself very actively. The Philippines has its home growth, this thing that just sort of bubbled up on its own. And if you look at it just in terms of, well, how tall are they or whatever, you know, those kind of how many gold medals do they have doesn't necessarily make sense. But it just is it really inspired me. Um, and I love what inspired you. The the story, the the, the just how it, it, I found it fascinating, just the, the, the and, and the and play actually getting and being able to experience it and play with people, whether they you know, I got to play with kind of like from kids on the street with who you know playing flip-flops or bare feet on on you know baskets that aren't 10 feet and whatever they could put it up on um to playing with former professionals and and guys who were legends there uh and seeing their moves that i'd never seen before you know you think you, you kind of think oh, i'm from new york like i'm from the mecca you know i play i'm from the states you know i know basketball and then to go to the philippines and all of a sudden guys are shooting these kind of like crazy layups over me, pulling the shots out of their ass, and they all keep going in. I'm like, I'm playing D, what's happening? <laughs> um, and the Euro step, the side step, was, has been there for, you know, 30 years. So just seeing, sort of witnessing that and then digging into the history of it, talking to the experiences of players, the mix of, um, you know, how, of course it is at, at, the, at the root level, an American import. Uh, you can't, it, it is. But, but then seeing how, you know, the culture and the, the country just grew it into something that also belongs very much solely to the Philippines was fascinating. I really loved it. Um, Did you ever consider just staying? Yeah. That was my, in fact, you know, before Grantland came up, that was my plan. I was going, or I don't know if I was going to stay forever, but 
I had plans to go there to work on a TV show for National Geographic Philippines. And then actually I was going to begin uh, writing a proposal for Emic Sorley's book. Um, and I was just going to stay in Manila until for some reason I didn't want to live there anymore. But instead, uh, Grantland. Instead, and that was it was worth it. It was you know uh, amazing to, to work with all those people and be part of something when you look back at it that, you know, I'm proud of that work. I, I have, it's easier for me to talk about the writers I worked with and the stories I wrote there than almost anything I've ever done because it's just, that's how proud I, I was of a lot of it. Um, you know, I'm like a lot of, a lot of writers, they, they do the sort of shambling, shuffling around, oh, well, you know, blah, 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 you know, kind of downplaying everything um, when, you, you know, they all sort of are very confident in themselves and they know it and we all know it and that's fine. That's, it feels like the way we have to act. But with the stuff, with the editing at Grantland, I mean, I sent you this long, like 500 word email being like, yeah. this is what I did. Um, because I don't know, I, 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 it meant a lot to me and it feels good to be like, yeah, I did that. You know, I was part of that. You were like, uh, you were one of the founding people. Almost. I, so technically my first day of work there was the third day of publishing. Um, so I was not the that fucking counts, man. Uh, well, well, if I say that counts, you know I'm going to hear from, uh, you know, I'm going to hear from J.K. I'm going to hear from Robert Mays. I'm going to hear from Bill. I'm going to hear from Dan Fierman and Lane Brown, who are the real, like, we sat in the L.A. Live office and yelled at each other for a month before this thing came out. <laughs> um, so they get that credit. Right, but I was, in, I was in right after that. I was basically the next person to join. Um, and by the end, I was the longest running person there because Dan left a couple weeks before. What were those early days like? Crazy. Uh, like we had hired so many writers and had so few editors that you were just always underwater, which is I, I hate to like complain about that because, you know, everyone working at every digital publication in an editorial role feels exactly the same way. And probably in a lot of ways had it worse than, than Grantland editors did, because in, in the grand scheme of things, we published less. Yeah. Um, but it was still um, absolutely overwhelming. And. Uh, on top of that, because it was so high profile, you know, because ESPN, it's Bill, Dave Eggers was involved, Malcolm Gladwell's involved, Chuck Klosterman's involved. They're all involved at the beginning. It was target practice as well. So we, there was so much stuff coming through our, our little bottleneck of people trying to edit it and get it up on time. And we were making mistakes and, you know, whether they were small or large and people were noticing every single one of them. Right. Were you guys like uh, reading Deadspin? Yeah, of course. You can't, you can't, I mean, you can't avoid it. Um, I didn't take it that seriously, uh, but a lot of people did. And like, um, it's hard not to, there were times when I did take it very seriously when I was like, well, I know that's not true about me. Why are you saying that we're all overpaid? You know, like I know that some people are not. Um, uh, um, so it's, um, you knew that we were going to have a big target on our backs. And yeah. I think I was proud, but I was also proud that we were able to do good work from the beginning. I mean, we were pub that first week they published a really great stuff one really good classroom story. Bissell wrote a review of LA noir that week. That was, I mean, everything Tom Bissell writes is, is you were his editor there, right? Uh, first Jay was, and then I was later on. And, uh, you know, th that was a sort of a humbling experience as an editor and as a writer where you, you sort of have this itch where I, I'm an editor. I have to do something here. But you're reading and you're like, I'm only going to make this worse. Like, I can. Did you know what you were doing? Did I? Uh, I, 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 questioned, I questioned that. 
to tell you the truth, because my experience before then had been, I had been around good editors. I had witnessed good editors. Right. I had worked as the fact checker on uh, some wonderful stories that, that, you know, the Harper's editors that I mentioned earlier had done. So I had seen that happen, but I had never been in charge of it. Um, yeah, what do you mean? What do you do with like a 5,000 word Bissell story ends up on your desk and you haven't actually edited stuff before? Well, you try not to mess it up. I mean, I, I from the beginning, I trusted myself to to tr- to suggest things when I thought they were necessary. Um, but also, I didn't mind being a little bit of a pushover in terms of like once I suggested it, if if somebody felt really strongly about it, it wasn't going to be like a, we're we're going to go to war on yeah. this. I mean, there could be things where that would happen, um, but that just generally wasn't my the way. It didn't seem worth it to me. Um, especially once I got a little more hang of working on the internet, it's like now it's like you know we can disagree on this point, and especially because the writers, there it's their stuff. Um, and at Grantland, we didn't have a house voice. I mean, we ended up having sort of a uh, something that developed organically, a tone or or just a, a spirit, but there there was no need to edit. Oh, too much for size or to say, well, this doesn't sound like a Grantland piece. Um, if it was good, if it worked, you could just run with it. Um, and But it was it was learning on the go. And there were times where I would be making edits and, and being like, I have no clue if this is actually what, you know, what Bill Wasik was doing in his office when I was at Harper's and, and he was editing stories that I liked. Um, I think... How do you figure that out? I don't know if I did figure it out. I think I did manage to become a, a good editor. I don't know if it was because I learned on the job or, or I had some of it in me. I think, honestly, the editing experience that did help me was writing writing, writing a book first, having that, that book on Philippine basketball, because um, when, you, when you're writing a book, you're basically on an island. I mean, like you have... I, there, I'm sure there are some editors in publishing who really go into it in, in more depth, but especially that one, which was a small book. Um, I don't think anyone had the time to go through it with me the way that I had seen magazine articles right. edited. Um, having to sort of figure out how to make that work on my own at least gave me some experience with narrative and and thinking of, you know, a lot of the time each chapter sort of resembles a little bit what a, what a magazine story or a long form story would, would look like. That helped. What was the culture of the place like? Um... It was funny at the beginning. I mean, people would laugh at it now. We'd all just moved to L.A. from different parts of the country, and none of us really knew anybody in L.A. Dan was the only person married at the time. So it was kind of like summer camp in a in a good and bad ways where, like, we became very close with each other uh, and at the same time could also really hate each other. Where you, you don't know anyone else here, and all you do is work. So you're in there all day much of the night you go home and sleep somewhere you come back you see the same people when you want to hang out they're the, they're the only people you can hang out with because you don't know anyone else around here but you're also pissed at them from something that happened Thursday and it it was a bit warped but but yeah, also so, intense. so intense that you end up looking back on it so fondly you know it's sort of classic sort of foxhole type thing where we were in there figuring things out on the fly under what felt like a ton of pressure. I'm sure it was less pressure than actually, you know, not like real life or death pressure in any way, but it felt like a lot of pressure at the time. Um, and we were putting pressure on ourselves. And uh, definitely when when all of us see each other, we have that 
even though I think the site grew and improved in a lot of ways over the years, that first year we sort of look at each other like they don't know, they don't know what it was like. <laughs> uh, and we're proud of also how good, you know, there were there were a lot of highlights there that had to do with the writing talent that was working for the site from the beginning. How was uh, Bill Simmons as a boss? You know, when when things were good, he cared so much about the site because I think you knowing, you know, reading about Bill in the media press, um, reading his own writing, hearing him talk, he is a very passionate guy. He cares a lot about everything he's involved in. And Grantland was an extension of him. He had, you know, he risked a lot on it professionally. Um, and he really believed in, in what, you know, he was in charge of, of building there. Um, so he would go to bat for us in every, like he really w- would kind of, you know, if, if we were having a problem with anything with, in terms of the greater ESPN infrastructure, he was not afraid to go yell at people and say, make this work. Now, I guess, you know, flash forward that like years down the line that could have affected the relationship that ended when they chose not to renew his contract and and basically fired him you know so maybe maybe that laid some seeds but in the moment you know just knowing that your boss who is one of the most powerful people in this giant powerful company and in media and in sports as a whole will really go to bat for whatever you ask him for feels incredibly empowering and you and and also makes you incredibly loyal to him you want to do anything you can kind of to live up to that and make him agree that the work you're doing for his site is is really high quality stuff. You know, I read a lot of the coverage around the end of the site. And one of the really striking things was how loyal it seemed like people were to him. Mm-hmm. It almost felt like that part of it had been like underestimated kind of. I think if you look at ESPN, they did underestimate that. Um, they and And I don't know if it was a mistake or there's no way they could have known that. Um, uh, everyone, all of us knew how loyal the staff was as a whole and how much um, working with Bill meant to us and, and how much we believed that, you know, the role he played in letting us do stuff we thought was good, but also guiding us in the right, you know, saying, well, let's let's focus on this because it's going to be a bigger story or whatever. You know, just... We all knew that he was a big part of that, and that was important to everyone, I think, who worked there. So inside, we that no one ever, I don't think, doubted that loyalty. I think that we all knew that when ESPN fired him or chose not to renew his contract, that if he decided that he did want to, you know, go in and make a new a new kind of publication, a lot of people would want to be a part of that, you know, because of because of what it, what working with him meant. What what was that day like when they didn't <clears throat> renew his contract? I wasn't there. Um, which I sort of feel bad about, um, but there's nothing I could do. I uh, was in the Philippines. I had traveled there a week earlier to write about the Manny Pacquiao-Floyd Mayweather fight. From there, I did a story about, you know, watching it from a giant public viewing in Manila, which seemed like a nice sort of Grantland wrinkle for us to put on it. And, you know, they were always very good about helping me find ways to sort of go scratch that itch to write about the Philippines, which never sort of left me. I, I sort of, you know, I still love the country and, and, and think it's fascinating. So there, there was always sort of an annual trip to the Philippines for me. And this seemed like the one we were going to build it around. Um, so I, it was midnight on a Friday in, in Manila. I was eating Shakey's pizza at a friend's house and my phone started blowing up and say, did you see what happened to Bill? And I, and I, you know, I couldn't believe it. Um, 
in some ways, uh, it was nice to be away from that because it sounded like such a traumatic day for everyone. And, and there was sort of, you're 8,000 miles away. There's nothing you can do, you yeah. know? Um, and then, and then to come back basically two weeks later and just, oh, this is a different place now. Um, and I, and I got into a car crash the night I got back. No shit. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. Um, uh, not, I mean, it was sort of, it was somewhat work related, you know, you're a little jet lagged, uh, from, from a 15 hour time difference. And, um, I was really eager to finish, uh, a first edit on David Samuel's, uh, sort of history of the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu dynasty. It's a great story. Um, I'd started, uh, and there was no great pressure to do it, especially at that point in time. I mean, I think people were still kind of in a, in a daze when it was like, what the heck is going on here? You know, how hard should we even be working? Um, but I loved that story and I was like, I want to finish this tonight. And then <laughs> when I, when I was driving home, I, I fell asleep at the wheel and luckily it was, uh, I was not on a freeway or anything, but, uh, I totaled the car oh, and shit. yeah, it was, it was, did you get hurt? Uh, I, no, I just, just messed up my foot a little bit, but, oh, uh, it was a very, it was the first major car crash in my life and it scared the, the crap out of me. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and there are times since then when I've been like, man, you know, work is not that important. Um, <laughs> what was the end like? I mean, really, you were there, you were there to the end. I was there to the end. Um, the last month was, you know, really, really difficult and painful. Um, so last, when I say the last month, I mean the month of October, um, because we knew it was coming, um, the, you know, Bill was off his ESPN contract, which meant that he was able to sort of start working on something new and, you know, was able to, he got, you know, people we'd worked with for a very long time, you know, the editors I'd shared, you know, that space with for, for years left. And it was just like, what the hell do we do now? Um, you know, we were all really proud of how we were able to rally and just keep ourselves going for yeah. the remaining three weeks of the website. Um, there's a lot of bad gallows humor in there that week, <laughs> those three weeks, um, where we didn't know, you know, we were like, why are we even trying? Why are we, why are we, cause it was, I mean, we were down, we were very understaffed at that point in time. Yeah. You know, we were there and it was like we back asked to the for, beginning sort of. Yeah. Back to the beginning, except we had a much bigger writing staff. And I think that's what we were, when we would talk about it, we'd be like, you know what, the, the, our writers are still there and they're so good and, and their work, you know, the only, let's say for as long as they give us this opportunity, this, the, the platform to put it out there, let's, try and keep it going let's let's keep let's keep publishing their stuff because it's it's we, we were really proud of it and so it was a skeleton staff with with people who had just been hired after being interns and people who had just been promoted from you know sort of fact checker roles to and then you're just throwing copy at them being like, everyone's editing now <laughs> um and just we were it was it meant a lot to see everyone rally and, and keep it together. And I don't know if we would have been able to keep that up probably at, you know, two more weeks and we all would have collapsed or something yeah. because it was crazy. The pace was out of control. And, but there were some really good days in the middle of that where we, 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 we just looked at the sign like, man, this was a real Grantland day. You know, everybody reading this outside doesn't know that we feel like, you know, uh, I don't know, we've all been had our legs chopped off. There was shit being written about your office yeah. all the time for like months. Yeah. What was it like to be covered in that way? Um, 
after the website was shut down and the you know, overflowing of praise and love and emotion. At first, it was hard for me to accept that kindly because it was like, well, these are mostly the same people who were kind of like sneering at the crap we've been going through for the last couple months. Whether or not they were the same people who were writing the pieces, this is the same group of, of you know, media, internet professionals and Twitter who who watch everything that goes on and and comment on it. And, you know, these are the same people who are, who are like sort of being, oh, yeah, another one. And there goes another employee. It's coming down, you know, and, and sort of uh, I will say Richard Deitch is out there reporting every minute of it and seeming to love every minute of it. Um, and then finally they, they pulled the plug on us and then it's, then then everyone can love us. You know, it's like, well, I don't know how much I really want that love at that point in time, you know, Um we were working pretty hard and, and it just didn't feel, it doesn't feel great, you know, and there's nothing you can do. You can only make it worse if you're going to engage and respond with stuff like that in the moment. So you, you just, um, let everybody have their fun and, uh, you know, and try, you know, at least now a couple of years later, it doesn't, you know, you can sort of focus on the pride that I think that last group felt in being able to keep the site alive. Sounds like it sucked. It definitely sucked. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not over it. I didn't get over it. Uh, you know, it was hard for me um, because, you know, from uh, Grantland to me represented a, a kind of work that I didn't think existed before before we started doing it there. Not to say that the, it was so no one had ever written so well. or then No, of course not. And, like, there's a lot of – I mean, it was a website. Every website, you have to publish, like, 10 – sort of fillery things or things that you don't put as much effort into in order to publish, you know, the three things that, that you love and think are great. That's just the way that goes. So it's not not that we had invented something that didn't exist before we started doing it. Um, I was always interested in these these sports narratives that were really weird and didn't belong in a national magazine, didn't even belong in Sports Illustrated because they were about little things that that couldn't necessarily grab a, a mass audience of millions of readers and because because we were running a website where you just need content i didn't have to think twice about assigning um you know a british writer like sam knight a story on the grand national horse race there in 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 london where horses were dying every year and and it, it just seemed so interesting to me i'd say yeah you're a good writer do it um and we could pay enough to make that worth people's while and and there were stories like that that existed at Grantland that are hard to find in other places um some of the the, the story Jason Fagone wrote about uh, uh what he called the the LeBron James of juggling yeah. who then gave up juggling and really delved into trying to figure out why you would you know you're this is something you are probably born to do and and had been training you know he grew up around master jugglers this was um this was sort of his his destiny, and and then to walk away from it and do drywall in Florida was this, and it's just uh, these stories that were, I guess you could say marginal, but also amazing, and I really loved, um, and I can you know I could sit here and name a lot of them and probably take up way too much time. Those kind of stories had a home at Grantland, and you can still find them on the internet. You can still find them in a lot of great publications, but I think Grantland became a place where we could really do them frequently. When you say you're not over it, what do you mean? Um, I mean that it's it's it hurt um, to I didn't 
so I, I, I didn't take it well. I didn't take it well on all sides. If I, to me, it felt like, um, and this is not necessarily right, but it felt like, you know, being in the middle of a bad divorce, being, you know, pissed on by both parents. And while they pissed on me, the entire internet laughed as I went down. I can't, can't look at it as a positive thing. It wasn't in my life. Uh, and it's hard. It's hard to keep up the same relationships. There hasn't been bad blood, but it's just like it's not the same, you know? It's like, and, and it's without, so it's hard to move on. What'd you do next? Well, the, honestly, that, you know, and, and this is the thing, objectively speaking, uh, it was the right time and the right thing for me because I had to finish this book. <laughs> I had to finish Two and Two, the McSorley's book. Um, I had signed a contract to, to write it all the way back in 2012. And because of the editorial load at, at, at Grantland, I just never could get it together to finish it. I tried to write stuff and it was just garbage. Like it didn't make sense. It had no direction. Uh, it was very, it was episodic and some of it was nice, but it was just, it went nowhere. And I would send it to my editor and they, and, and they'd look at it and be so, and they'd sort of write back, well, yeah. Um, and there were times when I thought I was just going to punt on the book. I, I, in fact, my, one time in around Labor Day in 2014, my agent said to me, hey, you know, you got to you got to finish this or show something or else they are going to cancel this contract. And I, I, I was working very hard at the time. And I was just like, well, tell them to cancel it because I'm not it, like th- this job pays me, you know, more and and it's going to last longer. So how can I justify this? Yeah. Um, and thank God that they didn't cancel it. They gave me one more year and said, look, um, and my editor called me. And said, All right. We understand what's going on. Think about if you can actually make this you know, finish this book and also think about what it's going to look like and and sort of put hope back into me that I could finish it and that there and so I sat down and over a weekend and wrote rewrote an outline that made sense you know not just like here 15 different uh snapshots of McSorley's but I still didn't write it that year um because I was still working and still couldn't find time and and thought that at the end of 2015 it was just going to kind of fizzle on me um so when, you know, Grantland was shut down at the end of October, that meant I had one chance to uh, to save it. And I was able to throw myself into that um, and distract myself from some of the, you know, anger I felt over losing losing my job and think that, well, you know, if I can finish this, then it's then it, then at least it all makes sense. At least I get something out of this. That mm-hmm. I that it, this is a chance to save the book. Uh, and I didn't finish right on time at the end of 2016, but I had written enough by then. I had about half of it done, and it was good enough that when I sent it to John, my editor, it bought me some time, and uh, we we managed to do it. Do you want another magazine job? I don't know. Um, I, I I'm I'm terrible at planning ahead. I, um. I've never, I, I, so I'm lucky that that I've landed in a lot of good places. I really like magazine editing. I think if I were able to, you know, work at a place where I thought we were doing great work and you know it felt good, you know, then I would, yeah, I would want to do it again. Um, but so uh, it, at the same time, I'm not. I don't really feel bad that I've been able to survive on the outside of a full-time media job for a year and a half and and see if I can squeeze out a little more time without a, a, a real salary before, um, you know, I start making decisions. But I've also come around to the point where 
Um, one, I miss being a part of something bigger than like myself, bigger than, and even though obviously the book and my own writing is important to me, it, you know, I miss that feeling more than I thought I would because um, it's a grass is greener thing. When you're an editor and you also, and you know, part of you is also a writer and you spend more of your time editing, you're like, well, shoot, man, well, how come I'm not writing this? Right. You know, how come, you know, why, why don't I have, why don't I have time to go do the story I want here? when I have to sit at my desk and, and rewrite this tonight. Um, but I do miss being a part of publication and planning and just trying to, you know, feeling like, man, what we, what we put out today was cool or what we put out this week or month was cool. It seems like just from hearing you talk about it, like it was part of it was being able to do these stories that are going to be hard to do anywhere else consistently, like do consistently weird stories. But part of it was just about like being on a team kind of. Yeah, well, I come from a team sports, I mean, not like a serious, serious team sports background, but played enough basketball in high school and uh, club basketball in college that it has infected my the way I view things more than I think is probably appropriate. Like, uh, I still walk down the street see and size people up being like, you know, could I check this guy? Like, could he score? I think I could lock him down, um, which is meaningless. What the, what, what the hell does that have to do in a magazine? You know, like, um, but there's a little bit of, of that, you know, it's weird. Um, and it's also, you know, and, and McSorley is one of the things I really loved there was when it got busy and there was no choice but to sort of become, even if you could flip the way you're looking at it and call us a, a sort of a Frederick Taylor style human uh, conveyor belt of, of ale. <laughs> but, but it felt like a, it felt like sport. a team, man. We're, yeah. We yeah. were like locked in. You, you have to be focused on sort of every little action to, uh, of, of cleaning mugs, picking up tips, you know, keeping your eye out for trouble, doing all these little things at once that, that, and, and being like on a rope with the other bartender who's pouring and it, 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 uh, it felt like a team. So how do you, I mean, how do you do both, man? How do you be part of a team, but also go pursue these projects? Uh, how do you be a writer know. and editor? I don't think you can. I, I mean, you know, I don't know if there's an, any, any easy way to do both at the same time, especially now when, when everyone's under a crunch to, to produce more. You can't do one good story as an editor uh, uh, per magazine cycle. I don't think there may, I'm sure there's a job out there like that, but the the person or people doing it are so talented that they deserve that time and there are probably other people as talented that could get in that role but they haven't gotten it yet um but i think that if you're on the editing side it's worth it even though it can drive you crazy to find outlets figure out a way to write even and it does drive you crazy because you know you're putting off editing something that you have to edit to work on some story that you're writing and it's not coming out the way you want and it's kind of torturing you and there's also that part of you that because you know how uh, publishing online works, you're thinking, man, I'm going to stay up four nights in a row to finish this. You know, we're going to f- drop it onto the page one day and then it's going to get flushed down the toilet and no one will ever hear about it again. Um, but still, even knowing that when it comes out and you look at it, hit the page or or hit a real page if you're working in print, it feels good. You're like, fuck, I'm glad I did that. Yeah. Um, so it's worth it. Never going to feel perfect, I don't think, but it's still worth it. You're going to move back in with your dad? It's a good chance. It seems like it makes sense to eventually uh, come back to New York, and I would, and if I do, I'd move right back in with my dad. And I, I, you know, I miss him. I wish we could spend more time together. If you come back, will you bartend? I hope so. You know, it, it's not easy to get back in the rotation, but 
if I'm here, if you're available and they know I can do the job, then probably they will throw me back in. Uh, it might not be like the great shifts at first, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they throw me back in. I love it. I, I miss working at the bar too. The physical side of it, you know, I think sometimes I, I wish that, you know, working in writing, working in publishing, something that we really love and care about. And I almost wonder if we take too much of our of our self-worth or whatever, our self-esteem, what makes us feel good from that. Because when it's not going well or when something, you know, when when a publication blows up, because they blow up all the time, then you're just left high and dry being like, what am I, what do I do now? So, you know, to, to do a job where you kind of go in there and work hard and zone out and, and then the rest of your life belongs to you is nice too. Seems like it worked out for your dad. It has worked out really well for him, and I'm, I'm proud of him. And I've always said that I would be very proud to literally follow in his footsteps as a bartender. Um, you know, there's a lot of family there. I don't know if it'll happen, but I think it's worked out for him really well. Rafe, thank you for doing this, man. Thank you, Max. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Devin Ratliff. Our editor this week was Mickey Capper. Our intern was Courtney Carroll. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors two podcasts you should check out fan club and the front row and thanks most of all to Rafe bartholomew uh the book is called two and two it's about mcsorley's you find yourself in new york go have a drink if you find yourself in a bookstore go get the book we'll see you next week Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.